The readings from John, chapter 16, verse 5 to 16. Now I am going to him who sent me, yet none of you ask me, where are you going? Because I have said these things, you are filled with grief. But I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I am going away. Unless I go away, the counsellor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment. In regard to sin, because men do not believe in me. In regard to righteousness, because I am going to the Father, where you can see me no longer. And in regard to judgment, because a prince of this world now stands condemned. I have much more to say to you, more than you can bear, more than you can now bear. But when he, the Spirit of Truth, comes, he will guide you into all truth. He will not speak on his own; he will speak only what he hears, and he will tell you what is yet to come. He will bring glory to me by taking from what is mine and making it known to you. All that belongs to the Father is mine. That is why I said the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. In a little while, you will see me no more. And then after a little while, you will see me. Let's pray. God our Father, please help us to be quietly attentive to your word. And we pray that we would not only understand, but that we would respond with loving obedience. For Jesus' sake, Amen. Amen. I don't know if you've seen the film Troy. I think it was about six years ago. It wasn't a very memorable film. Um, Brad Pitt stars as Achilles with the most gargantuan muscles, which I'm sure are computer enhanced. <laughs> Personally, as a man, I cannot believe that my muscles are really so inferior. <laughs> But one of the themes of that film is that uh, whenever the Greek army was in trouble, the cry would go up, where is Achilles? And whenever the Trojan army saw him, the cry of alarm went up, it's Achilles. Achilles seemed to be the key to victory most of the time. And if you'd asked a Greek soldier, would you rather have Achilles with you in the battle, or would you prefer it if he weren't there, the answer would be simple. Don't be stupid. Of course, Achilles is the one person we want. If you'd asked the 11 apostles who they most wanted with them, the answer would have been very simple. Of course, don't be stupid. Of course, we want Jesus with us. He's the one who stilled the storm. He's the one who's walked on water. He's the one who raises the dead. He's the one we want with us. And we tend to feel the same. If only the physical Jesus were here, as he was with the apostles, then all our problems would be solved. Revival would break out, Richard Dawkins would be refuted, Britain would turn back to God, and so on. But when the apostles uh, talked to Jesus about this, he gave them precisely the opposite answer. He said, no, you're going to be better off when I'm gone. That's the surprise with which this passage starts. And so the first thing I want to say from verses 5 to 7 is this. It is better to have the Spirit than the physical Jesus. You and I, if we are Christian men and women today, are better off than those 11 apostles were who had walked with Jesus for two or three years. Very surprising, isn't it? 
We are better off now that Jesus has gone. So verse 5, Jesus says, Now I'm going to him who sent me, that is the Father. Jesus has often said in, in the past few chapters, I'm going away. Yet none of you asks me, where are you going? That's a little bit surprising because at the end of chapter 13, verse 36, Simon Peter has asked him precisely that question, where are you going? And at the beginning of chapter 14, verse 5, Thomas had followed it up with the same question, Lord, we don't know where you're going. And it seems that what's, what, what's going on here, when Jesus says, none of you asks me where I'm going, is, is, is something like this. that They were saying, where are you going? But they weren't terribly interested in where he was going. They were simply frightened by the fact that he was going. They were concerned about what was going to happen to them when they were left behind. They weren't actually terribly interested in where he was going. Don Carson, in his commentary, has a nice little illustration of this. He says it's like when a, a father's promised his son that he'll take the son on a fishing trip, and then the father's called away on a business um, to a business meeting, and the son says to the father, "Oh, dad, where are you going?" Now the son isn't interested in where the dad's going. All he's interested in is the fact that he is going. Now that was the case with the disciples, but Jesus says, "I want you to understand where I'm going." Because if you understand where I'm going, then you'll understand that it's better for me to go. So verse 6, because I have said these things, talking about going away, you are filled with grief. And they were, their hearts were deeply troubled. But I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I'm going away. So he's not saying, I'm going away and that's bad but you'll see me again and that, so that'll be, it'll make it less bad. He's saying it's a good thing that I'm going away because unless I go away, the counsellor won't come to you. The counsellor is a name for the Holy Spirit, the helper. But if I go, I will send him to you. Let me try and unpack this a little bit. Where is Jesus going? Well, he's going to the cross. That's the next thing that happens in John's Gospel when the action starts again in chapter 18. He's going to the cross and then the resurrection, and then the ascension to the Father. But he's going to the cross. Unless I go away, unless I go to the cross, the Holy Spirit can't be given to you. Now, the Holy Spirit is the eternal Spirit of God. He is God, the Holy Spirit. He's the third person of the Trinity. He's eternal. And he was active all through Old Testament days, from the creation of the world onwards. God, the Holy Spirit, was active in all sorts of different ways. But what's going to happen after the cross is that the Holy Spirit is going to be poured out on all God's people without exception. And he's going to dwell in their hearts forever. And so there's something new in the depth and the permanence and the extent of the Spirit's ministry after the cross that can only happen after the cross. Jesus has spoken often of the Holy Spirit in, in, in John's Gospel so far. Been, or John has spoken and Jesus of the Holy Spirit various times. Jesus' baptism the Spirit rests on Jesus. And, and John the Baptist says, this is the one who's going to baptize people with the Holy Spirit. He's going to pour the Spirit of God, the invisible Spirit, God himself, into the hearts of men and women when they become believers. Chapter 3, Nicodemus, Jesus says to him, unless you're born again by the Spirit, then you can't see the kingdom of God. But it hasn't happened yet. Chapter 4, he meets a, a Samaritan woman at a well and he promises her living water. And when we get to chapter 7, we discover that the living water is Jesus is speaking about the Spirit who's going to come and live in hearts of those who believe in Jesus. 
Just glance back at chapter 7, would you, verse 39, where John, the Gospel writer, gives us a little explanatory comment. John 7, verse 39. In verses 37 and 38 of chapter 7, Jesus has said, If anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And he promises anyone who believes in him, verse 38, that streams of living water will flow from within him. And John then explains, by this, Jesus meant the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were later to receive. Nicodemus has not yet received the Spirit. The Samaritan woman has not yet received the Spirit. The apostles have not yet received the Spirit. Up to that time, says John, the Spirit had not been given, not in this new sense, this new covenant sense, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. And glorified in John's Gospel means lifted up on the cross. That's where Jesus is glorified. And only after Jesus has been lifted up on the cross and has died can the Spirit be poured out. Let me just ask why that's the case. You and I, if we, if we think about, you know, if you ask non-Christian people, if they have some sort of spirituality in some vague sort of sense, they might think that if there is a God or gods or goddesses, that somehow to have the spirit of the gods in our hearts would be a, would be a nice thing. What they and we need to learn is for the, that for the spirit of the utterly holy God to come and live in my heart or yours would be suicide. Because for the spirit of the Holy God to come into my unforgiven heart, my dirty heart would burn me up. And only after Jesus has died for my sin, only after the sacrifice has been paid, only after the righteous anger of God against sinners has been paid, is it possible for the spirit to be poured out. John Chrysostom, a great 4th century preacher, said this, Why did the spirit not come? until Jesus departed, that is, to the cross. Answer, because the curse, that is, the, the righteous curse of God on sinners, was not yet taken away. Sin was not yet loosed. You know, the sin was still a burden on my back. It hadn't yet been taken off like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress. Everything was still subject to the vengeance of God, and so he could not come. So it's good, says Jesus, that I go away to the cross. Because if Jesus were still here physically, bodily, before the cross, sin would not be paid for and the Spirit could not be given. So it is a wonderful thing that Jesus goes away. We'll, sit, we'll think about this a little bit more later in, in the chapter and after coffee. But it's a wonderful thing. We are better off. And Jesus then goes on to expand, expand what the counsellor, the Spirit, is going to do and he does this in, well, now I'll come to that in just a moment. Let me just apply this first point. We mustn't think of Jesus from a worldly point of view. Paul uses that expression in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 16. He says, we used to think of Jesus from a worldly point of view. We used to think of him just as a human being in a human body walking this earth. We used to think of him like that. But, says Paul, we do so no longer. Now he's died and risen and ascended and the Spirit has been poured out. And we, we're very prone to this, to go back to Old Covenant thinking, if only I had been Jesus, with Jesus in Galilee, we say. 
If only I'd been there. I've been reading a, a wonderful history of a couple of um, very sparky 19th century um, sisters. They were Scottish Presbyterians. They were believers. And they were great sort of adventurers in the Middle East in the middle of the 19th century. And in, in 1869, they paid their first visit to Jerusalem. And they were horrified with what they found, the, the kind of pilgrimages and stuff that they found. And uh, the, the, the biographer says, of the Roman Catholics who went to Jerusalem to see the grave of Christ, Agnes, that's one of the sisters, wrote, we can hardly understand what benefit they expect to derive from visiting it. Our Saviour is risen, and the distance is short indeed which separates him from a believing soul. How right they were. When people say they're going to the Holy Land on a pilgrimage, we want to say, I can hardly work out what benefit they expect to derive from it. I visited Israel some years ago. It was fascinating. It was very, you know, if you can afford it, if you're privileged enough to be able to afford it, it's very interesting, the stuff you can see. But it's not a spiritual experience. If you think it's a spiritual experience to stand by the Sea of Galilee, you're a new ager. Or you're living under the, under the Old Covenant. You don't believe that Jesus has died and risen and that the Holy Spirit's been given. We mustn't think of him from a worldly point of view. I'm not going to go on about that, otherwise I'll get boring. Right. <laughs> where are we in John's Gospel? Well, we're in, in John's Gospel, you know where we are, and there are two fears that the eleven have, and both of these fears are going to be addressed now by this teaching about the Holy Spirit. First of all, there's the fear of a hostile world. We thought about that after coffee yesterday, that sobering passage about the world hating Jesus and hating Jesus' people. And the second fear, which is obviously related to it, is the fear of an absent Jesus. I'm going away, I'm going away, I'm only with you for a little while, he keeps saying. And so they're frightened, of course they're frightened, if Jesus is going away and I'm going to be left alone in a hostile world, I'm not sure that I want to be one of his followers. Now both of these fears are addressed with what Jesus now says about the Holy Spirit. First of all, in verses 8 to 11, he speaks about what the Holy Spirit will do in a guilty world and a hostile world. And then in verses 12 um, through to, to 15 or 16, he speaks about what the Spirit will do within the church. So first of all, the Spirit brings conviction to a guilty world. The Spirit, the Spirit of God, God the Holy Spirit, is going to do something which, dare I say it, Jesus generally didn't do. That is to say, verse um, verse 8 when he comes notice he's a person he the counsellor the helper the spirit when he comes he will convict the world of guilt show up their guilt in regard to sin and righteousness and judgment and then he expands on those in, in regard to sin because people do not believe in me we are sinners and our unbelief in Jesus points up our sin. The fact that we don't believe in Jesus by nature is the proof that I'm a sinner. The fact that I will not trust in perfect goodness and perfect love is the proof that I'm a sinner and the Spirit will bring conviction of that. And then of righteousness, verse, nine, in regard to, verse 10, in regard to righteousness... 
because I'm going to the Father where you can see me no longer. And I think the meaning of this is that the Spirit is going to convict people of the righteousness of Jesus. By and large, Jesus' contemporaries thought he was not righteous. Back in chapter 9, they said to, to the man born blind, we know that this man, Jesus, is a sinner. We're convinced that he's not righteous. But the Spirit is going to convince men and women of the righteousness of Jesus because I'm going to the Father, and that's the evidence, the proof of that. And then verse um, 11, in regard to judgment, because the prince of this world, that is the devil, now stands condemned, condemned at the cross. Now I want to, to pause on these, this because it's really, really important. The only thing that the Holy Spirit is said to do in the world outside is bring conviction of sin. If you hear people saying that the Spirit of God is at work in the world, at work in nature, at work in art, at work in culture, say actually the Spirit they're talking about is not the Spirit of God. Often there's this kind of New Age spirituality you know, Gaia, the Earth Mother. Have you seen Avatar? A sort of New Age Buddhist kind of film. Bad Americans. Good worshippers of the Earth Mother. <laughs> it's rubbish really, isn't it? But the 3D... <laughs> the 3D was good there, wasn't it? <laughs> but people sometimes speak... I mean, sometimes in so-called Christian circles, you get people talking about the spirit in the sense of a kind of earth mother world evolving consciousness and therefore they say Christian people must learn from the world because the spirit is at work in the world and the New Testament does not teach that the New Testament teaches that the spirit of God convicts the world of sin our sin and righteousness Jesus' righteousness and the world's judgment in other words, the ministry of the Spirit in the world is, in, the, in this sense, necessarily negative until people leave the world and come to Christ. And that this conviction business, I'm trying to th think of an example just in ordinary life that, that helps us to feel it. I think the nearest I can get is that, is that really bad feeling. You probably haven't had it, but when you're, 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 you've broken some traffic law, you're speeding or something, and then in your mirror you see the flashing blue light. Do you know that feeling? And, th and then they, they pull you in. I, maybe you, I mean, you're probably law-abiding people. You probably haven't had it. But I, on occasion, I have had it. It's a really bad, it's a really bad feeling, though, isn't it? Because you know you're guilty. You just have to put your hands up and say, you know, I'm sorry. I know I'm guilty. No pretenses. That's what conviction is. Conviction is when I'm no longer pretending that I'm innocent. Conviction is, is when I really, I know I'm in the wrong and Jesus is in the right now we can't do this for other people William Wilberforce you know the anti-slavery campaigner was an evangelical Christian and he believed that the conversion of one human being was more important than all the political campaigning that he did and he was a very very close long to lifetime friend of Pitt the Younger the Prime Minister great Prime Minister in the Napoleonic Wars and he, he, he really tried to talk to, to Pitt about, um, about the gospel and on one occasion he persuaded Pitt to hear a sermon from a noted evangelical preacher, a man called Richard Cecil and William Hague in his biography 
um, I think it was the biography of um, Pitt, or it might have been Wilberforce, I can't remember which biography it was, but Pitt said to Wilberforce afterwards, you know Wilberforce, I have not the slightest idea what that man has been talking about. This from arguably the most able and intelligent man in England. He'd listened to this sermon, he said, I have not the slightest idea what that man was talking about. Because until the Spirit of God brings conviction, people can listen to the best preacher in the world and it won't make any, uh, have any effect at all. When I was a boy at school, before I was converted, Dick Lucas came to do a sort of mission at our school. Dick Lucas, some of you may have heard, he's a well-known evangelical preacher, one of the best preachers of his day. I'm pretty sure he preached the gospel. I find it hard to believe that he didn't. And I, I remember going and I heard him and I thought, he's a good speaker. But I wasn't converted. That's all I thought. I just thought he's a good speaker. And then a couple of years later, I went to a Christian summer, summer camp and the Spirit of God worked in my heart. I expect the, the, the gospel talk I heard was probably less good. But the Spirit of God worked in my heart, brought conviction of sin. And until God does that, we can't do anything. Now, it, it, it's just, it is worth thinking about this because... It was necessary for Jesus to come as a human being in history at a particular place at a particular time so that what he did and who he, wa who he was could be publicly attested and witnessed as part of human history, as public fact. But if that was all that happened and then he died and was raised and ascended to heaven, full stop, what, would have, what we'd have been left with would have been something which increasingly became like a museum. You know, like if you visit the, the home of some famous person who's died, you know, Winston Churchill in Chartwell or Thomas Hardy's house or something, and all you've got is a few mementos, somebody's rocking chair, somebody's cigar, you know, that kind of thing. That's all you've got. And it's just rather sad, a few devotees trying to re remember the person and gradually fades into history. And what the Holy Spirit does is to take the... The, the particular facts of Jesus, publicly attested, true public facts, and then to bring them home to individual hearts all over the world, all through the rest of history. And that's a wonderful thing. Now, that could never have happened if Jesus hadn't gone. Now, this, this is so important. It was so interesting to, to, to hear Chris and Phoebe telling some of their stories earlier, wasn't it? And how... You know, never mind the times when they'd done the right thing and the times when they were saying, well, maybe they hadn't yet done the right thing. Never mind that. But did you notice that sometimes, quite unexpectedly, when they, they invited someone or said something about Jesus, somebody really responded positively. Other times, just washed over them. That's our experience, isn't it, if you've been a Christian very long. Often it seems to be the negative. But then sometimes, somebody just listens. This is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We can't do this and we need to pray for this. We really do need to pray for this, for passion for life and all through our Christian lives. When I was, I was um, in my 20s, I was teaching in a school and uh, we had a little, tiny little, pathetic little Christian union group in the school. It was pathetic, really. I was pathetic and it was pathetic. The whole thing was pathetic. <laughs> Christian work often is, isn't it? It, it was a boys' school, 650 boys, and the gods were the first 15 rugby. You know, that was all that counted in that school, was the rugby players. You know, if you were a boy, you wanted to be a rugby player. I have to tell you, I have always been hopeless at rugby. 
So I had no credibility with the tribal chieftains of that school. You know, they didn't think, gosh, he's a hero, he's a rugby blue, he's a rugby international, that sort of thing, um, at all. I was just a maths teacher, which, I mean, you know, due respect to my fellow maths teachers, you know, it's not especially cool. <laughs> but we had a little group, of, little group of, of, of boys who'd been at the school who were Christians who prayed for us. And one term I sent out my prayer letter to them, and I don't know why I did this, but I said, please would you pray... That, 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 that a boy who will be really influential in the school for, for others, for the gospel of Jesus, will be converted. I don't know why I asked that, but I, for some reason I, I felt I wanted to ask that. And they prayed. And the next term, a boy came up to me, um, a 14-year-old boy came up to me at the end of a maths lesson. And he said, sir, because it was a respectful kind of school, he said, sir, um, can I come and talk to you about my, whatever it's called, RE, um, homework, which is an odd question to ask a maths teacher. He knew I was a Christian. And he came to talk to me. And it wasn't, he didn't really want to talk to me about his homework. He said, actually, I'm, I'm just conscious that there's this barrier between me and God. Sometimes I go to a Holy Communion service that the chaplain puts on, and there's a barrier between me and God, and I don't know what to do about it. I've never had such an obvious gospel opportunity. I mean, it was so easy. I just took him through the gospel, and he tumbled into the kingdom. And later he was head boy and captain of the first 15. And through his influence, you know, one or two others were converted. And it was wonderful. But this is the Holy Spirit. God loves to do this through weak people. If he'd done that through a rugby international, we might have thought that was the key to Christian success. We need celebrities on our platforms. But the key to Christian success is the ministry of the Spirit bringing conviction. Jonathan Edwards, um, not the triple jumper, but the American theologian and um, philosopher, was in the middle of a very remarkable work of God in the 1730s in, in New England, what's now the United States. And he wrote a book called A Narrative of Surprising Conversions, in which he, he, he said the, the arguments are the same that the people have heard hundreds of times before. But the force of the arguments and their conviction by them is altogether new. They come with a new and before unexperienced power. Before they heard it was so, and perhaps they allowed it to be so in a sort of formal sense, but now they see it to be so indeed. Now things now look exceedingly plain to them. And they wonder they did not see them before. This is the work of the Spirit. See, by nature, if you think sin, righteousness and judgment, by nature I thought I was okay, Jesus was irrelevant, and the world is where I get my values. And then by the ministry of the Holy Spirit I discover that I am deeply not okay. I'm convicted of sin. I discover that Jesus is the only really right person in human history. Even though I'd written him off, I'm convicted of righteousness. And I discover that the world is walking on its head. And the ruler of this world is judged and the world's values are completely upside down. This is the work of the Spirit in the world and we need to pray for this. But I must move on to verses 12 to 15 where Jesus goes on to the work of God in the church. We're over the page in the uh, um, booklet. And I put it like this. The, the Spirit leads the apostolic church and I'll explain what I mean by that into the way of the trinity and I want to say three things I put them all there on the handout I want to say three things 
in a sense I'll, I'll go in between these three first of all the spirit guided the apostles into all truth second he guides us to walk in the truth he revealed to the apostles and third this truth is the way of the trinity let me try and unpack those verse 12 Jesus says I've got much more to say to you more than you can now bear Jesus, this isn't that Jesus um, has withheld things from them. He's given them full security clearance. Everything that the Father said to him, he said to them in a sense. But they can't cope with it all yet. It's a bit like um, when fraud agents raid some company with a fraud case. You know, and you see them carrying out these box loads of all the papers from the office. You've seen those things on television sometimes. They've got them all but they haven't unpacked them and it's going to take them perhaps months or years really to, 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 to work it all out and see what's in there. And Jesus says that the, that the Holy Spirit is going to do that with them. When he, the spirit of truth, always the truthful witness to Jesus comes, he will guide you or he will weigh you. The word for guide is, is linked to the, the word for way. Jesus is the way. He's going to weigh you. He's going to lead you in the way of or into all truth he's not going to speak verse um, 13 on his own that's to say the Holy Spirit never speaks Holy Spirit words to the apostles he doesn't speak on his own just as Jesus never spoke on his own Jesus always spoke what the Father had given him to speak so the Holy Spirit speaks what the Father and Jesus have given him to speak so this is the Trinity we mustn't ever think of the Holy Spirit separate from the Father and the Son. But what he hears, um, he'll speak only what he hears, that is from the Father and the Son, verse 13, and he will tell you what is yet to come. We'll come back to that in a moment. He'll tell you what's yet to come. 14, he'll bring glory to me. He'll put Jesus' name in lights. The Holy Spirit loves not to bring a draw attention to himself. He's the member of the Trinity who least likes to be talked about in a sense he'll bring glory to Jesus by taking from what is mine and making it known to you now those words making it known in verse 14 and the word tell you in verse 13 are the same word in the original so he'll tell you what's yet to come and he'll take from what's mine says Jesus and show it to you he'll show you what's yet to come he'll show you my stuff so what's yet to come is not random future facts like what the stock market's going to do next week. What's yet to come is Jesus' stuff being unpacked. It's the implications of Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension. What it all meant, what it all means being unpacked. So it's not that the Holy Spirit, as it were, gives the apostles lots of new packets of heavenly downloads arriving you know, into their inbox month by month over the years that come it's that the Holy Spirit they've, all be, they've already been given everything in Jesus Jesus is God's final word and the Spirit unpacks all the Jesus stuff they've been given so that as the apostles walk in the way of Jesus and teach the Jesus stuff over the rest of their lives the Holy Spirit makes sure that what the apostles teach is the truth of the Jesus stuff and therefore, he guided the apostles into all truth, which means we can trust the New Testament. If the Holy Spirit had not done that wonderful work in the apostles, 
we could never trust the New Testament. The New Testament would be random perspectives of people and what different people thought about Jesus, just human words. But because the Holy Spirit led this unique group of the apostles into all truth, the New Testament is trustworthy. So that's the first thing he does. But he does also guide us. He guides us not um, in a way that bypasses the apostles. So beware, here's two things to beware of. Beware when you hear Christian leaders saying, of course the Bible teaches this, but now the Holy Spirit has led us, the church, into a bit more truth and we know that they were wrong and we're better. Watch for that. Happens in the contemporary church a lot with regard to sexual ethics. Of course the Bible taught that, but the Bible was wrong because the Holy Spirit has now led us into more truth. Rubbish. The truth the Holy Spirit leads us into is the truth that he led the apostles into and not a different truth. That's why I called the church the apostolic church. Sometimes we speak of the church as being one holy, set apart, Catholic, which means universal, not Roman Catholic, and apostolic church. Apostolic means evangelical, faithful to the Bible, church. And he, but he guides us to walk in that same truth. So watch out for church leaders who say that. And watch out for individuals who say, the Holy Spirit has guided me into some particular truth. Who think they've got a hotline. And that the Holy Spirit somehow has guided them into something that he hadn't guided the apostles into. Clever old them. It's usually a manifestation of human pride. That. We have no hotline. The Holy Spirit guided the apostles into all truth. The truth he guided them into is, is securely written down for us in the New Testament. So it doesn't change. And the ministry of the Spirit with the church today is to lead us together into the truth he led the apostles into. It's his ministry to, 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 to walk us in that way. So it's not that he gives us new information, but that he, 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 he works what elsewhere in the New Testament is called the fruit of the Spirit in us. The fruit of the Holy Spirit's work in us, which is godliness and Christ-likeness. So pray that the Holy Spirit will lead you this week into truth. Not that he'll tell you things you didn't know, but that he'll lead you to walk in the way of the gospel, the way of the apostles, the way of scripture. You can't do it without him. I can't do it without him. We need his help um, for that. So let me conclude. The... Um, let me just, just finish off 14, 15. He'll bring glory to me, taking from what's mine, making it known to you. The Holy Spirit loved to take the Jesus stuff, opening it up for the apostles. They've opened it up for us, and he loves to, as it were, open the pages of Scripture so that we'll, we'll wonder at the, the truth and the majesty and the, 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 the wonder of Jesus. Verse 15, all that belongs to the Father is mine. Notice how Trinitarian this is. All that belongs to the Father is mine, says Jesus. That's why I said the Spirit will take from what is mine and make it known to you. So the way that he, 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 he leads us in is the way of the Trinity, the way of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So Jesus says, in a little while you won't see me anymore. Then after a little while you will see me at the resurrection. We'll come to that after coffee. Um, but the, 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 are you convinced that we are actually better off than the 11 apostles were before the cross? Because Jesus went to the cross and, and our hearts can be cleansed from sin, 
the Spirit of God, God himself in the person of his Holy Spirit can come and dwell in our hearts forever. And through us he will do that wonderful work of conviction in the world without which none of us would ever have become Christians. Convicting of sin, righteousness and judgment. Our sin, the rightness of Jesus and the world's values being judged turned upside down. And that in us, as a local church, he will lead us to walk in the way that he led the apostles in. The Holy Spirit is a wonderful person and he loves to bring glory to Jesus and Jesus loves to bring glory to the Father. So let's be Trinitarian Christians. Let me, let me pray and then I think we're going to sing a song before coffee. It is for your good that I'm going away. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you went away to the cross on that terrible path and you paid for our sin and we praise you that because you did that the Holy Spirit could be poured out we thank you for his work convicting of sin, righteousness and judgment, we pray that we might see more and more, more of that work, particularly through passion for life and we thank you for his work in the church leading us to walk in the way of the apostles and we pray for more and more of his work in us for your name's sake Amen